Uh, I have brought with me some more of these Herald of Hope magazines. There's two or three different uh, months out there, and you're welcome to have take one of those. There won't be one for everybody, but there are some for those who would like to read those. Now, t- today we're we're reading in First Corinthians chapter 15, the great uh, resurrection chapter, and. Uh, so if you would like to turn to in your Bibles to, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we can read together. I'm reading from the New King James. And the verses that you've given me to read today begin at verse 20. And go on to verse 28. Now, I can see that you're going through this chapter uh, quite thoroughly by giving me just a short passage, but there's plenty in this passage to allow me to speak to you today for two hours. I don't have to be that long, but we could easily be, even though there's only uh, nine verses in it. So if we turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20... But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when it says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And may God bless this reading from uh, his own word to our hearts today. Now what we have here in this uh, short passage in the middle of the great resurrection chapter is uh, uh, God's redemptive plan, uh, a bird's eye view, if you like, on God's redemptive plan and how critical the resurrection is to that plan. So we start with that great statement, now is Christ risen. Now is Christ risen from the dead. Now it cannot be denied, and that takes us back to the uh, witnesses who testified that they had seen the Lord. And we, as, we go, we, as we go back to verse 5 in the, in the same chapter, we read that he was shown to, he was made himself known to Peter and to James and to 500 people at one time, I believe that was up on, on the shores of Galilee, and uh, so that there were plenty of witnesses uh, that can testify to the fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. All these witnesses testify to the fact that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. They saw him and they were uh, able to give testimony. Now it's important to understand how critical it is Uh, for them and for us to believe not only in the resurrection of the Lord but also in our own resurrection, the resurrection that lies ahead of us. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because I live, you shall live also. 
Because I live, you shall live also. Now the resurrection of Christ is doubly important because verse 25 tells us Christ must reign. If he's not risen, he can't reign on the earth. So our Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. King Jesus must rise in order to reign. And then it says in verse 24, and then comes the end. Now there is, there is an accelerating move in this chapter to the end. But what end is it talking about? The end of what? I suggest to you that what it's talking about is the end of history. Uh, where is human history going? Where did it start? Where will it end? Is history a travesty or a triumph? Think about that. His reign will bring history to a triumphant end, a triumphant conclusion. But that's only the end of history. It's not the end of all things. For then Jesus Christ delivers finally the kingdom to God, the Father, and ends time and ushers in eternity after history. Now the signs are here now for the beginning of the end. The Jews are back in their holy land where prophecy, the Bible prophesies that they will be when Christ returns. We've seen the return of the Jews to the holy land exactly as prophesied. We're seeing the awakening in the Orient. We, uh, we have seen or are seeing the collapse of the world's monetary system around us today which will le uh, lead the, leave the way open for Antichrist to come. There are sufficient weapons of destruction in the world today to bring about all the devastation prophesied in the book of Revelation. Now, this is not accomplished with bows and arrows. We have seen an escalation of destruction in nature with a great increase in, uh, in um, tsunamis and uh, earthquakes and floods. We're looking toward a one-world apostate church so many things point to the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ could come for us at any moment. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It's what we call imminent. It doesn't mean he must come right now, but he could come any moment. He could come any moment. Now, the resurrection is a triumph over despair. There is another inability to deal with the dilemmas of our time. So many live just for the moment for uh, drugs and drink and sex and crime, never knowing who might push the button that will blow us all into oblivion. Look ahead to death and wonder if there's anything beyond death. If there's nothing beyond it, does life have any meaning? If man was created to go out of existence at the grave, Life is a devastating, bad joke. If man has no value but to die and become dust, then all of life is meaningless, pointless. And so, in verse 19, the verse before our passage today, it says this, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most to be pitied. If this life is all there is, then we had better grab it with both hands and get as much out of it as we possibly can while it's still there. Wouldn't that be the attitude, if that's all there was? There's only despair if the grave is the end. 
If there's nothing beyond the grave, then man simply has no value. The only way that there can be triumph over despair is in resurrection. And that brings us to the first verse of our passage today, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Hallelujah! And has become the first fruits of those who sleep, those who've fallen asleep. Now there's a wonderful but there. You see, the but there means that that first uh, verse 19 is, uh, is not, for, not for real. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, but, but, verse 20, now Christ is risen from the dead, you see, and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now that Christ is risen, death then is not the end. He has become the first fruits, the guarantor, the pledge, the promise of all who die in Christ, of all who die believing. Jesus not only conquered death for himself, but he conquered death for all of those whom he has redeemed. What a wonderful statement it is, isn't it? If Jesus had stayed in the grave, we have reason to despair. We would have a reason to be cynical, to be pessimistic, to be fatalistic, to be amoral. But since Jesus came out of the grave, then there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. We have eternal value and we can be restored to the image of Almighty God because Christ rose again. That and that alone makes life worth living. So resurrection is a triumph over despair. Think of it from the standpoint of the disciples. When their Lord and Master died on a Roman cross and was laid in the grave, they were scattered and in total despair, confused, wondering how they could have been so wrong about him. Think of those two on the road to Emmaus. Cleopas, and I think it was Cleopas' wife, was the other one, walking back to Emmaus and in utter despair and confusion until the Lord Jesus spoke to them in resurrection and revealed himself to them, made himself known to them as to who he, exactly who he was, who was speaking with them. The resurrection brought new hope. Now, no matter how bad this world gets, God is going to make it new. No matter how insoluble man's dilemma, God is going to make it right when the king returns to reign. The beginning of the end may be the very next event in God's calendar, the rapture of the church. The signs are there. 1 Thessalonians 4. So we do not live as others who have no hope. No, why should we live like they are, like they do? All the wrongs will be put right. Sorrow will be turned to joy. There is life beyond the grave, abundant, eternal life. Now, the resurrection is more uh, than just a triumph over despair. It's also a triumph over depravity. Now, another word for depravity is sin. If Christ is going to make of man what man ought to be and what God intended man to be, 
then he has to overcome man's greatest problem, which is sin and death. But verse 21 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. And verse 22 explains verse 21, isn't it? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. When Adam sinned, the principle of sin and death passed to all men. As the sin of one man brought death, so the resurrection of one man brings life. Jesus overturned the curse <coughs> that came through Adam. This one act conquered sin and death forever. Now, sin is what causes death. We, 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 we can't be in any doubt about that. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Jesus dying on the cross felt the full impact of man's sin. The full impact of man's sin was placed upon him. Just imagine the weight of that sin upon his holy soul. Can you just imagine it? You think of your own sin and then multiply that by billions and all of that was placed upon the holy soul of the Son of God while he died on the cross for all that sin. Adam took us into death. Jesus takes us through death into resurrection life. That is, that is the significance of the resurrection. It is the triumph over depravity. If there is ever going to be a better world, and if men are ever going to reach the potential that God always intended for man to be, then the Lord must conquer man's debility, which is sin and death. The two go hand in hand. The two go together. But you know, as we come to the end of this marvellous chapter, uh, we have this great doxology. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ conquered sin and death for us. For us. Now the resurrection is not only the triumph over despair and depravity, but it's also the triumph over destiny for mankind. We, uh, man down through the uh, flow of history has descended into pessimism, fatalism, and immorality. And we could ask ourselves today as we look around our own world, our own country, where will it all end? Where will it end? Can anything change the destiny of man? Can anything overrule the inevitability of hell? The resurrection is the answer. The resurrection is the answer. Each one in his own order. Listen to verse 23. Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. So the key words there are at his coming. At his coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be conquered is death. 
Jesus rose to reign. That's the whole point of it. Jesus rose bodily in order to reign. This is the great climax of human history. Now, the book of Revelation sees him as the one who rose in order to reign. Revelation 1 and 7, Behold, he comes with the clouds. He's coming from heaven to earth and he will break through the clouds when he comes all the way to earth to reign. He's the first begotten from the dead that he might return to reign. Now, those who have received Christ Jesus as Lord will enter into his glorious kingdom and know the fulfillment of all that God ever intended man to be. He will gather into his kingdom all his own and exclude those who do not belong. History ends with Christ reigning on the earth. Eric Sauer puts it like this, the present age is Easter time. It begins with the resurrection of the Redeemer and ends with the resurrection of the redeemed. So we live between two Easter's, between the resurrection of the Lord and our own resurrection. The last Easter is fulfilled with our resurrection. Because I live, you shall live also. Now the last Easter will first of all involve the judgment seat of Christ. This is not in our passage today, but we need to know these things. In Revelation 22 and 12, Jesus makes this promise, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work should be. And then in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10 we read, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now the judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. It's not a judgment on them for their sins. And why not? Because the, their sins were dealt with at Calvary. Their sins were dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. It is the judgment on Christian service for the purpose of reward and not for punishment. Then, with or without reward, we are together presented by our Lord Jesus Christ as his chaste bride, clothed in his righteousness, to God the Father. Can you just imagine that scene in glory? There follows the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. There will be great celebration when we, the church, the bride of Christ, will be forever with our glorious bridegroom. Now ask yourself this question. If Jesus were to come today, would he take you into his kingdom or would you be left behind for judgment? Many of us here are the Lord's and will be taken into his kingdom. There may be some yet sitting in front of me today who have not yet given their lives to the Lord. Well, if you can't answer that question positively with a yes, the Lord offers you his salvation right now, right where you're sitting right now. All you have to do is to ask him. Romans 10 and 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord 
and believe in your heart that God has raised them from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's the gospel message in a nutshell. You need to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and bow the knee to him, bow your knee to him, who died and rose again for you. Then when it is time for Christ to return to earth, to take up his kingdom, you will return with him, to reign with him, serving him in the kingdom. John 14, 3, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what the Lord said to his disciples. And the Lord says that to every one of us. Now, there are two classes of people uh, on earth during the Lord's reign. First of all, there are the church saints who were resurrected, raised and given their resurrection glorified immortal bodies at the rapture who return to earth with the Lord. So that's one class in their glorified immortal bodies. The second ones are those who have lived through the tribulation and been saved to go into the millennial kingdom in the immortal bodies and the children who will be born to them, their offspring. Now the resurrection of our Lord is inextricably tied to our own resurrection. The fact that Christ rose bodily from the grave is the guarantee that we also will rise bodily and gloriously. Now, is Christ's resurrection, in fact, the proof of our own resurrection? Yes. Look at verse 20 again. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He is the first fruits, and we are the harvest. He's the first fruits. We who belong to him are the harvest. Paul is saying if you deny bodily resurrection, then Christ can't be risen, can he? The gospel is useless. Faith is empty. Apostles are liars. We're all in our sins and Christians are the most to be pitied on earth. That's what he's saying here. His resurrection is just the first fruits of a whole harvest of resurrection yet to come. He, has, he was raised to, to be the first fruits of all who trust in him. Now, when we go back in the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter 23, we notice that the first fruits of the harvest, all to be, uh, the first gleanings were to be presented to the priests as an offering of thanksgiving. The first fruits were given to God as an act of faith. So the first fruits in any of their harvest, whether it was barley or, or some other grain, whether it was wheat or whether it was fruit from the trees, it went to the priests as an offering to God. That was the first fruits. And the faith came in that they, uh, they believed that God would give them a bumper harvest after the first fruits. Now, Christ, the first to be, re to be uh, resurrected, offers himself to God as the first fruits, and in that offering secures for us our own resurrection gathering unto him. In the same way, the resurrection of Christ is a sign pointing to the great harvest of believers in resurrection. Now, was Christ the first to rise from the dead? Well, no, strictly speaking not. He, he, ra he raised some people from the dead during his life. But they all were raised in their mortal bodies so that each one of them has died since. Christ is the first to be raised in his glorified uh, um, and eternal body. 
his, his, in his immortal, incorruptible, eternal body. And he, as the first fruits, guarantees that we also will be raised with an immortal and incorruptible, eternal and glorious body. All of those who have died, of all of those who have died, only one up to this point has been raised, uh, never to die again, and that is Christ. Those who have died in Christ immediately go to be with Christ, but their bodies lie in the grave waiting for their resurrection. We know that their bodies are in the grave. We've seen them planted there. We've seen our own loved ones planted in the grave waiting for their resurrection. But 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now how can the resurrection of one man have such an impact on all those who believe? And verses 21 and 22 give us the answer. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. Now it's not the same man. By Adam came death through sin. But Jesus Christ gives life through resurrection. We came into the world as sinners, sinners by nature and sinners by practice. The one act of one man in one point of time, in one place in history, brought sin to all men and death. Then another man, through the sacrifice of his life and his resurrection, brought resurrection life to redeemed men, to all redeemed men. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Well now, who died? Who's the all that died? All who are in Adam. Well, who's the ones that are made alive? All who are in Christ. All who are descended from Christ by faith will live. So the first all includes all who are in Adam by the common factor of sin. The second all includes all who are in Christ by the uncommon factor of faith. All who are in Christ will live. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Now, not every man, but every man who is in Christ. My dear friends, are we all in Christ today? All of us. We now arrive at the harvest. When is the harvest? Verse 23 tells us when the harvest is. At his coming. At his coming. Revelation 20 speaks of a first and a second resurrection. First is the resurrection of the just, the redeemed of the ages, believers, before the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, then the resurrection of the unjust, the unredeemed, at the end of the millennial kingdom. But the first resurrection has three different time periods. There's the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself three days after his crucifixion. Then there's the bodily resurrection of church saints at the rapture. Finally, there's the bodily resurrection of tribulation martyrs at the return of Christ. The Redeemer doesn't come out of the grave in isolation. He's the first fruits, but there's to be a great harvest. He's simply the first fruits, the guarantee. Now, we read, then comes the end. And the word for end there is 
uh, translated the end as telosin, and it really means the end or the result or the purpose or the goal. Now, God's purpose in creation is redemption. Paradise lost at the fall is regained. There are wonderful passages that describe the millennial kingdom. And if you want to make a note of some of the best of them, you have them in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 65, describing the conditions of this earth when the Lord returns and, uh, and how different it will be from the ecology as we know it today. Paradise lost at the fall has to be regained. But you know, this is the end of history, but it's not the end of all things. The end is when God ends time after the millennial kingdom and ushers in eternity, when everything goes back to God from whom it came. This is a triumphant end, really, a new beginning. A new beginning. Verse 24, the end of the old and the beginning of the new when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. And this is the purpose, the goal behind it all. Christ takes his kingdom. Christ establishes the kingdom, subdues all rule and all other authority and presents it all back to God the Father. Christ the firstfruits has risen. The next phase in the resurrection process is the rapture of the church. Revelation 5 uh, says, And after the church is raptured, then Christ takes the title deeds of the earth in his hand. And Revelation from chapter 6 through chapter 18, all of those chapters describe to us how he takes back the world from Satan. Seven years of judgment called the tribulation. And in Matthew 24 we read, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Can you just imagine the glorious scene it will be as they see Christ from heaven and they're going to see him all around the world. Every eye will see him. How marvellous that day will be. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. In his own resurrection, our Lord has already gained the victory over death. Ultimately, there will be no more death. The last chapter in the last book of the Bible says there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more sadness, no more sorrow, and no more death. Ultimately, the present heavens and earth must be destroyed and replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. Now why would that be? Because the old heavens and earth have known sin. Now you say, oh, well, surely heaven hasn't known sin, has it? Yes. Satan was cast out of heaven for his sin. Earth also has known sin and must be destroyed. God is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. And then verses 27 and 28, speaking of the Lord Jesus, for he has put all things under his feet in that day. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now in Matthew 28, the Lord said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Everything is subject to him 
except, of course, God the Father. What is the kingdom that he gives back to the Father? The kingdom is redeemed souls, redeemed men, redeemed people. The resurrection of Christ has real ramifications for us. If there is no restored earth, then God has lost the battle of history to Satan, never to get it back again. Now, that we are raised means that we will reign with him in his earthly kingdom, bringing history to a triumphant conclusion. God will not lose the battle of history, believe me. Then when all his enemies are destroyed, he can give all his ransomed redeemed back to the Father as a glorified, resurrected humanity. Now, in spite of man's sin, God never gave up on his plan. God had a plan before history began. And in spite of man's sin, God never gave up on the plan. Listen to Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be their God, uh, will be with them and be their God. And why? Why all this? So that God may be all in all. So that God may be all in all. Now, what is the purpose of creation? And what is the purpose of redemption? So that God can give to his son a kingdom. The redeemed of all the ages, Old Testament saints, church saints, tribulation saints, and millennial saints. The plan of redemption is not complete until there are no more enemies of God left. God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, will be universally recognized as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, even that is not the end, the very end. When time gives way to eternity, there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness, which have never known sin. What a wonderful concept, isn't it? The Father ordained redemptive history to gather a bride, a kingdom for his Son, a gift of the Father's love. In an act of divine unity, the Son then gives the kingdom back to the Father in a reciprocal act of divine love that the triune God may be all in all. What a ceremony that will be. The grandeur of this crowning event can hardly be fathomed. But as I close, I just want to make one appeal. You know, salvation is very personal. The Son of God has come and died for us and conquered death. And, and being raised from the dead, he has provided resurrection for all who believe, for all who want to receive it. The offer is there. What a majestic plan God has in this passage that he has revealed to us. I say, do you want to be a part of it? Do you want to be a part of that majestic plan that looks forward into the 
the last days of history and beyond into eternity itself. Would you like to be part of that? What kind of a fool would say no? What kind of a fool would say no to that? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us of the future. We thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ came the first time as the suffering servant, the one who would die on a cross for our sins. And we hate to think of how he was vilified on this earth, but we rejoice to know that he will be exalted and extolled and made very high on this same earth when he returns to take up his kingdom. We rejoice to know that our Lord Jesus Christ is in the, is in the heaven before the throne of Almighty God and there he is uh, our advocate with the Father. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his first coming. We thank you that he's coming again uh, and the next time he's coming not as the suffering saviour but as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we look forward to the day when we will see our blessed Lord Jesus Christ face to face. And wonder of wonders, we who have been so unlike him will have been made just like Jesus. Oh, the plan of God is so absolutely wonderful. Eyes not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But the Lord has revealed many things to us uh, from, from a... Uh, a prophetic viewpoint. And we do thank you, our Father, for uh, all these passages of Scripture that tell us of the crowning plan of our great God from the glory of heaven and looking uh, into the future. We rejoice in the person of our Saviour. We rejoice in the person of our God as we offer you our worship today, this Lord's Day, in the Saviour's precious name. Amen. Amen. 